Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are continuing in Proverbs chapter 29 tonight. We didn't quite finish the chapter, but I don't really want to start right exactly where we left off. We will get there eventually. By the time we get into chapter 30, right away, we're going to come across one of those big, essential, biblical concepts. So I'd like to start there because I think we're also going to kind of wrap up the night there. And so that becomes like the bookend for the evening. Yesterday on Facebook, I quoted the particular text that we're going to start by looking at. And all I did was just quote the text. I didn't need any commentary. I didn't need to add anything to it because it said by itself everything that needed to be said. If you would, Tom, I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy 4.2. That is in the law of Moses. Micah, if you would, Deuteronomy 12.32. Steve, if you would, Revelation 22.18. Those texts are all going to say the same thing that we're going to read here in Proverbs chapter 30. Verse 5, which says, every word of God is tested. That word translated tested means to be tried, to be purified, the same way that silver is tried in the fire and then purified. So every word of God is pure. It's been tried in the fire. It's trustworthy. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Then look at verse 6. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you, and you be proved a liar. Because the Bible says, let God be true, let every man be a liar. God is not like men in that he's not a liar. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. In other words, every word that God speaks is correct and right and true and provably thus. And then when human beings try to add something to the word of God, those God-breathed words you find in Scripture have a much higher level of authenticity and honesty and truth and veracity and everlastingness, much more so than any human word can have. So then if we take our words and try to put them on par with God's word and then we try to add it to God's word as if it was something that God actually said, that God actually promoted, the end result is always going to be that we will be shown to be a liar because we have lied on God. Certainly Paul says that when talking to the Corinthians about the resurrection. He says, Christ resurrected. And if there is no resurrection, then we're liars because we've been testifying that God raised Christ from the dead, whom he raised not if there is no resurrection. So Paul even says, if we go about 
proclaiming things that God has not established, that God has not proclaimed. That doesn't make us creative. What it makes us is wrong. It makes us liars. And so we have no leave, we have no warrant, we have no invitation from God to add to his word. Do people do that? Well, yeah. Now the warning goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Tom is going to read for us Deuteronomy 4.2, and he dutifully stood up to do it, so I appreciate that. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Actually, do me a favor. Read the verse before that as well. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God of your father, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Now the reason I had Tom go back and read the earlier part is that he is At that moment, God is speaking of his laws, his precepts, his commands, which he gave to Israel. Those things make up the Pentateuch, and those things make up the vast majority of what we call the Old Testament. And so there we are with a direct command from God not to add to his word, his law, his commands, the things that he has established. We're not to add to those. Micah, if you would... Deuteronomy 12:32 but I but I think read verse 31 as well. Okay. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done to their for their gods for they even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you you shall be careful to do it. You shall not add to nor take away from it. So here God is comparing himself to the foreign gods, and he's saying, you have gone and worshipped the foreign gods. The only way that Israel could go chase after foreign gods would be to self-justify and think that his word, when he said, you'll have no other gods before me, was not adequate, that you could add to it. When he said, uh, you won't make any graven images. You know, that, well, he didn't mean that. We, we can add to that. We can also add our gods to that. And yet, in correcting Israel's behavior toward foreign gods, he reminds them again, don't add to what I've told you. Steve has got, from the book of Revelation, Revelation twenty-two eighteen. In 19, I think? Sure, why not? I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Twice in Deuteronomy, once in Revelation. So you've got the beginning of the book, you've got the end of the book. And right here, pretty much in the middle of the book, in the book of Proverbs, you find that every word of God is true, tested, pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So do not add to his words 
lest he reprove you and you are proved a liar. So can you think of any examples where people have truly genuinely added to his word? Well, yes, it's not hard to find Rome's teaching where they have equated the dogma that comes out of Rome with what the Bible says. Certainly the Bible says nothing about Mary as perpetually a virgin. The Bible says nothing about Mary as co-redemptrix or co-mediatrix. And yet those are dogmas within the Catholic Church that in order to be a good practicing Catholic, you have to adhere to those dogmas as part of your Christian salvation responsibility. So what is that? Well, that's adding to the word of God. I can be more controversial if you'd like, because that one was pretty obvious. Sure. Don't you nod so vigorously at me. <laughs> the word free will is not in the Bible. And in fact, the concept of completely unencumbered human free will to do whatever you want at any moment without any outside influence doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible. And in fact, we're told that when it comes to salvation, it's not by him that wills, it's not by him that runs, it's not by anybody's individual bloodline, it is of God. And yet people, when they construct their theology of how people are saved, will throw in the idea of free will. Okay, that's adding to the word of God. The word of God has already spoken on the topic, and yet people add their traditions in order to be Creative. Now, I know that twice this evening I have used that term creative. The church that Tom and I come out of back in California, and I know by now you're very tired of hearing about this, but the pastor out there used to say with great bravado and great pride that when he was at school, one of his professors referred to him as one of the most creative theologians that had come through the school. And he used to say that as if it was a badge of honor. And it always bothered me because I always questioned, should you really be creative when it comes to the word of God? What we're told by Paul, Paul speaking to Timothy directly, having told him that the scripture is theonostos, then says, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, preach the word the word of God, which has already been tried, which is already pure, which is already eternal, which word does stand forever, as it says right here on the front of our pulpit, that is the word that we are supposed to preach, and yet so often you will hear people preach extra-biblical, sub-biblical, fanciful, imaginary things, and then blame it on God. You turn on TBN any time of day, and you can find somebody saying, that they just got a word from the Holy Spirit. Mm. So they're blaming God. They're saying this is God who said this. And then they're making pronouncements. And there's a real obvious current example of it. So many of the faith teachers of the world, a few weeks ago, were all proclaiming against COVID-19. They were all proclaiming an end of the virus. They were all demanding Many of them shouting while they did it because apparently viruses can't stand it when you shout at them. <laughs> People were yelling at COVID-19 to go away and they were blaming the Holy Spirit for it. 
Okay, that would be adding to the word of God because we're not told anywhere that we have that kind of ability or authority. Instead, what we're told is that everything that does come about is in the hands of a sovereign God and that he will give us the strength to endure it and that there is no temptation taken us, no trial that has come to us except that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will with the temptation, with the trial, provide a way of escape so that we're able to endure it. And so what we've been talking about on Sunday morning is this idea of persevering, enduring, keeping on in the faith despite the circumstances. What we're not told is that we can yell at our circumstances and change the circumstances. That's not promised anywhere in the Bible. So that would be, yet again, another example of saying something that is extra-biblical and then claiming that it is on par with the Word of God. So the reason behind my giving you several different examples from several different perspectives is to say this is a really common thing that happens. One of the nicer compliments that I got on my 20th anniversary of my ordination a couple weeks ago, somebody who shall remain nameless, uh, but he looks a lot like Micah, um, (laughs) thanked me that for the last 20 years, for 19 years here at GCA, that I had continued to just emphasize the Bible, that I just kept going back to the word. What does the word say? That we have gone verse by verse through books of the Bible, that we've covered the entire New Testament and the vast majority of the Old Testament, where we have gone verse by verse through these books. Because that directive... Don't add to the word, don't add to the commands, don't add to the precepts, don't add to what the pure word of God has already said. I take that really, really seriously, and I try in the teaching and preaching that we do here at GCA, I try to emphasize that this is what the word of God says, and then we have to bring our thinking, our theology, our doctrine, our teaching in league with what the Bible says as opposed to trying to avoid what the Bible says so that we can say things that are more attractive to the human ego and the human desire to be made much of, if that, in fact, was a good sentence. Human beings like to be lifted up. They like to be raised up. They like to be told that they're great and that God arranged things in such a way as to extol the virtue of them. But that's not what the Bible says. Human beings exist to extol the virtue of God. So that's why we keep trying to put the emphasis on the word of God. That's why we keep pounding the word of God. That's why we keep hammering away at the word of God. Because not only have we been told, preach the word, but we've also been told that the word of God is pure, right, eternal. It's already been tried. It's already been established forever. O Lord, thy word is established in heaven settled in heaven and that every word of God then is not to be added to do not add to his words because the end is going to be that he is going to reprove you one thing that we know about God one of the characteristics of God that we find in his word is that he is a jealous God and he is jealous for his word he is jealous for his reputation he's jealous for his worship his glorification 
and every time you try to add to his word to advance yourself or to advance other human beings, make other people look good, you are reducing the glory of God. And he won't stand for that. He will reprove you, which means to correct you, and in the process he will demonstrate that you are a liar because you are lying on the word of God by claiming that your words are commensurate with his words. And if we know anything about God in you, we know that you're not like God and God is not like you. And that means that God's word is not like your word. And when it comes to your word, you're told frequently, shut up. <laughs> and when it comes to God's word, you're told, preach that. Make sense? Yes. Okay. So then in chapter 29 of Proverbs, we ended at verse 19. Verse 19 and verse 21 go together in order to make sense of them. You have to look at them together. But in between those two verses is verse 20, which we actually looked at last week. And verse 22 is after it. And we looked at that last week. Look at verse 9. It says, when a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs, and there is no rest. And in the context of looking at that last week, we skip to verse 11, which also says, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Then we jump to verse 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And then we jump to verse 22. An angry man stirs up strife. He just told us that a fool always loses his temper. But an angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. He doesn't just occasionally transgress. He abounds in transgressions because of his hot temper and his constant anger, which is demonstrating that he is, in fact, a fool. All of that can be summarized in verse 23, which says a man's pride, and it is a man's pride that causes him to be quick-tempered or angry or to think that other people deserve his wrath. It is that kind of fool who is hasty with his words, who can't wait to make everybody hear more of him and more of his thoughts and more of his opinions. He doesn't want to hear from anybody else, but he's very hasty with his own words without thinking about what he's saying. All of that is wrapped up in the pride of a human being, and a man's pride will bring him low. But a humble spirit will obtain honor, that concept is said over and over and over again in the Bible. God resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. If he loves you, if he is kind to you, he is going to break you of your pride. You're born arrogant. You're born proud. You're born full of ego and self-satisfaction. What do babies cry about? They never cry, Mama's hungry. No, they cry, I'm hungry. Me, feed me. I need to be, I don't want to go to sleep now. I'm awake in the middle of the night and you need to be because we are born completely and utterly self-involved and egocentric. And at some point during our lives, we're supposed to get over that and recognize the generalized other and recognize that we are not the center of the universe and that other people have other opinions and that our opinion is not the only important one. 
I said that we should outgrow that, but not everybody does. Some adults are still seemingly trying to get over that. There are plenty of people who were born completely egocentric who have lived the rest of their lives completely egocentric. They still think that the universe revolves around them and that their opinion is more important than anybody else's. They can't wait to hear themselves talk more, and they think that other people just deserve to hear their anger and their wrath and they're angry all the time. If God loves you, he will break you of all that. He will bring you down. He will bring you out of your pride because a humble spirit obtains honor. Now, Solomon might be speaking from the aspect of king of Israel. He might be saying people who come before him with a humble spirit, people who come before him recognizing his authority and not trying to make too much of themselves, that as a result, they're going to attain honor. He's going to give them what they have requested, or they may even get uh, an office, a position of authority. But it's also a reality from God's perspective. God resists the proud, and he gives more grace to the humble. So we know that it's a spiritual reality as well, that a humble spirit will obtain honor. The greatest honor that God can give to anybody is to allow them to come live in his heaven with him. And no proud, arrogant people will be there. Nobody is going to get to heaven and start thinking, it's about me. Everybody in heaven is going to know that it's about God. So that's why I keep saying that if God is kind to you, if he's gracious to you, he will break your pride. He will bring you to a place of humility. And then in that humility, he will bring you up to the place of honor. We find Jesus saying things like, when you go into your meetings and your assemblies, don't take the high seat. Don't just assume that you get the important seat. Take the low seat and then wait to be asked up. Okay, same idea, same concept. This idea permeates scripture that you have to be broken of your natural from birth pride your arrogance, your just natural self-centeredness, God is going to break you of that. But then once he has broken you of that and genuine humility overtakes you, then he, out of grace, out of kindness, is then going to bring you up, is then going to lift you up so that you know that the advancement that you're receiving is not about you. It's a matter of grace. See how that all works? Okay, so Solomon knew that. Moses clearly knew it. The New Testament writers know it. Jesus knows it. The Bible from start to finish says that we need to be humble before God. We need to recognize who God is and who we are. And yet, that just seems to be so remarkably difficult for human beings to do because our sinful arrogance and pride just permeates us. I think it's a good prayer to go to God and just say, break me. Help me get over myself. Okay, so that wraps up all the verses around verse 19 and verse 21. Verse 19 and verse 21 has to do with slaves. Now, when we're talking Old Testament slaves, we are obviously not talking about the modern concept of slaves. Slavery in the Old Testament 
could be people who had been captured but then not killed, who were willing to go into slavery. Sometimes it could be indentured servitude, people who couldn't pay back debts, and so they would work off their debts through being a slave. And also the society that we read about in the Bible all the way up to the Roman society is a two-tiered class system. There is no middle class. The middle class is a very recent, relatively speaking, a very recent phenomenon. As you saw more of the merchant class and the agricultural class coming up, you have the rise of the middle class. But the class system that Solomon was living under, writing under, was free people, free-born people, people who, who had sufficient wealth, sufficient capability to take care of themselves and be generous to other people. And then there was the lower class. And part of that lower class, in order just to live, would make themselves slave voluntarily to somebody who actually had some substance. So much of what we're referring to here as slaves is uh, diametrically different than our modern concept of slavery and our modern concepts of a class system. Does that make sense? Okay. That being the case, when you have a slave, according to Solomon in verse 19, it is apparently not enough to just simply instruct your slave with words. Because, he says... A slave will not be instructed by words, and then the NASB adds the word alone, because that seems to be the implication, that words by themselves are not adequate to instruct a servant or a slave, that you also have to instruct them sometimes into obedience and not just words. A slave will not be instructed by words alone, for though he understands the words, though he comprehends the words, though he speaks your language, though he understands what you've said, sometimes there's not going to be a response. Sometimes they're not going to go do what you told them to do. And so he says, you have to teach them proper obedience. Now, in teaching them proper obedience, when we look at verse 21, we see one of those unique moments in the Old Testament a word that is not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. And as a result of it being a fairly unique word, translators have wrestled with what the word means. In the Hebrew language, as you may recall, there are no vowels. Every once in a while you'll find little markers, vowel markers, but Hebrew is predominantly a spoken language. And so depending on how you pronounce the vowels that show up between the consonants, that can change the meaning of the word completely. For instance, we read the cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. But some translations will say the cattle and the oxen belong to the Lord. Because the word for a thousand and the word for oxen have the same consonants. So depending on how that word is translated and how that word is pronounced, which we don't know, well, then you're going to say either it's a thousand or it means oxen. Same thing here. The verse reads in the NASB, he who pampers his slave from childhood will in the end 
find him to be a son. That sounds very positive. That sounds very much like, oh, so then you should pamper your slave. Because if you pamper your slave, what you'll find out is that if you've raised him from childhood by pampering him, instead of disciplining him, you will find him to be like a son to you. That sounds very positive. But let me read you a few other translations because that same word can also be translated. Well, here's the way that the Bible knowledge commentary says it. The importance of disciplining and not pampering servants is touched on in verse 21. Failure to discipline a servant and to require him to carry out his responsibilities will result in grief. That word can also be translated as grief. And then they point out that's a Hebrew word that's only used here in the Old Testament. So it's going to lead to grief in the end for the master rather than a son in the end for the master. And as a result, every translation I read was slightly different. So depending on which translation you read, you'll get a different understanding of this particular verse. The 21st century King James Version says, He that delicately brings up his servant from childhood shall have him become his son in the end. That's a very positive reading of it. The American Standard Version says, He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become a son at the last. Oh, good. The Amplified Bible says, He who pampers his servant from childhood will have him expecting the rights of a son afterwards. Mm. Oh, well, wait a minute. That's different. It's not just that he will be a son. You'll love him and he'll love you. Rather that if you pamper your slave, he'll grow up to expect to be treated like a son. The Christian Standard Bible says, a servant pampered from his youth will become arrogant later on. Well, that's very different than the NASB and the 21st century King James Version because this Hebrew word is not precise. We don't know exactly what the meaning is. The common English Bible says pamper servants from a young age and later on there will be trouble. We don't know what kind of trouble. There's just going to be trouble. They took that word in that grief meaning of the word. The complete Jewish Bible, I wanted to look that up because it's a uh, translation from the Hebrew. Okay, what do they think? And a slave who was pampered from youth will in the end be ungrateful. Okay, well, that's different again. The contemporary English Bible says, slaves that you treat kindly from their childhood will cause you sorrow. The Dewey Rames 1899 American edition says, he that nourishes his servant delicately from his childhood afterwards shall find him stubborn. Well, that's quite different than all the other translations. Apparently, he's just going to kind of dig in his heels. The evangelical heritage version says, if someone pampers his servant from the time he is young, later on he will have grief. Okay, they went right with the grief word. English Standard Version says, whoever pampers his servant from childhood will in the end find him his heir. They went with the son idea 
and that he will end up being the heir of the household, sort of like Abraham telling God, I don't have an heir. And so this Eliezer of Damascus is going to end up being my heir. A servant is going to be my heir. The expanded Bible says, if you spoil your servants when they are young, they will bring you grief later on. The Geneva Bible in 1599 said, he that delicately bringeth up his servant from youth at length He will be even as a son. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, a slave pampered from his youth will become arrogant later on. The ISV, the International Standard Version, says if you pamper a servant from his childhood, later on he will become ungrateful. The 1689 King James says he that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become a son at length. The Lexham English Bible says, He who pampers his servant from childhood, arrogance will be his in the end. I've got more of these. I could keep going. But but do you see the wide variety of translations? And it's because they don't really know what this Hebrew word is meant to say. If you let people treat you like a doormat, then you'll be quite forgotten in the end. That's what the message Bible went with. I mean, it's just all over the map. The New American Bible Revised Version says, if servants are pampered from childhood, they'll turn out to be stubborn. New American Standard, he who pampers his slave from childhood will in the end find him to be a son. New English Translation says, if someone pampers his servant from youth, He will be a weakling in the end. The NIV says a servant pampered from youth will turn out to be insolent. The new revised standard version says a slave pampered from childhood will come to a bad end. The revised standard version says he who pampers his servant from childhood will in the end find his heir. The Wycliffe Bible says he that nourishes his servant delicately from childhood, shall find him, A, a rebel afterwards, and then in parenthesis, he who delicately cares for his servant from childhood shall find him to be rebellious. So Wycliffe gives you two versions of it, just to cover all the bases. Finally, Young's literal translation says, whoso is bringing up his servant delicately from youth His latter end also is that he is the continuator. So which is the proper translation? (laughs) Yes, sir. Doesn't reading 21 within the context of 19 kind of rule out two-thirds of those interpretations? That's why I'm trying to combine the two. That's why I'm saying you got to look at the two together and you get the sense that Speaking to the slave, speaking to a servant, speaking to somebody who is in your direct employ, working in your household, someone who is under your hand of instruction, speaking to them may not be enough. They will hear you, but they won't do what you say. Therefore, discipline has to enter into it. And so if you don't discipline them and you pamper that servant from the time he's a child then he's going to grow up not knowing what discipline is. Solomon has told us repeatedly that you discipline your son. 
If you love your son, you will discipline him. You will chastise him. You'll take the rod to him. Therefore, if you treat your servant better than you treat your son, he will grow up to think that he's better than the son. He will assume that he is the heir. He will bring you all kinds of trouble. And so I think all of the translations we looked at all kind of color what this particular proverb is trying to tell us. In the end, the controversy will continue and continue, but I think contextually, as Tom said, it seems to be more of a negative than a positive. It is saying that you need to discipline your servant from the time he's a child. Otherwise, in the end, he's going to bring you a great deal of grief. That's the way I understand it. If you understand it differently, fine. Make your case. Now we are in verse 24. He who is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath, but tells nothing. The second half of that verse seems to be, since I keep repeating and keep emphasizing that Solomon as king is also judge, he seems to be talking about in a court here that someone who is sworn to tell the truth is going to end up saying nothing if he is friend, if he is partner with a thief. He's not going to testify against his thief friend. And he who is a partner with a thief, with a dishonest man, actually ends up hating his own life because he's ruining his own reputation He's ruining his own sense of self by the fact that he's not able to be honest because his friendship with the thief causes him to take an oath to tell the truth and then telling nothing, saying nothing, not being able to be honest in a court of law and that of all places is where your reputation would be established. Verse 25 then. And really, verse 25 so connects with everything I was saying at the beginning of this evening. Why would anybody add to the word of God? Why would anybody take away from the word of God? Well, people take away from the word of God because they find things in the word that, that they don't like, that they're not comfortable with, that they don't know how to deal with, or they think it'll make somebody else feel bad, or that it will perhaps drive away people who would otherwise listen to them. In other words, they fear men. They're concerned about what men will think of them. And so for fear of men, they add to the word things that aren't there, or they take away from the word. Uh, certainly, Peter says in the New Testament, when he's told to stop preaching after this name, his answer is, should we obey man or God? So... Same concept here in Proverbs. The fear of man brings a trap. It brings a snare. I would argue that the most obvious trap is the one I've been trying to elucidate. You're trapped into not being honest with the word of God. The word of God is more trustworthy, more tried, more true than any of your words or any other human's words but then you'll either avoid those words or add to those words or truncate those words if you have a fear of people and you're afraid of what human beings can do to you. 
And when human beings say, stop saying that, you'll quit saying it for fear of what people can do to you. Jesus said, don't fear men who can only kill the body, but fear God who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. That's where your genuine reverence, your genuine fear ought to be. But that fear, that reverence of men brings a trap. But he who trusts the Lord will be exalted. So the contrast just couldn't be more obvious. You're either going to fear God or you're going to fear man. Solomon has told us that fearing men is a trap. It's going to wrap you up. It's going to ensnare you. And it's ultimately going to bring your destruction. But if you fear God, which is the very beginning of wisdom, I think it's really interesting that that's where we began the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here we are as we're wrapping up Solomon's words. Here we are again being told that we need to trust the Lord. That is what wisdom is. And the one who trusts the Lord will be lifted up, will be exalted. And boy, you don't get more exalted than to be joint heir with the Son of God. That's about as much exaltation as your little self can stand. And yet, people, for whatever reason, out of fear of other people, are afraid to say what the Word of God says. They will avoid some of what the Word of God says because they want people to like them. But if God is on your side, what are we told by Paul? If God be for us, who can be against us? us? Mm -hmm. So there's obviously a right side in this equation, and the right side is get on God's side. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Verse 26, I think he's speaking from the position of king. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. So Solomon, one more time, demonstrating that whether it's fear of men or whether it's because you think men can help you out, they can lift you up, they can exalt you, and so you're seeking the ruler's good favor because you think the ruler is the one that can really do something for you, can really help you, can really make you something. He, as the king, as the one who has the authority in Israel, as the one who can lift people up, as the one who truly had life and death in his own hands. He has that much authority and that much power, and yet he wants to make sure that nobody thinks that favor from him is what the ultimate favor is. Ultimate favor comes from God. Justice for a man comes from the Lord. So we put those two verses together, and we get the fear of man brings a snare But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted, and many seek a ruler's favor. But justice for man comes from the Lord. And then we wrap up with verse 27, which I said last week, I think is the summary of everything we've read in the book of Proverbs so far. The entire first 29 chapters that we've gone through can really be wrapped up in this. An unjust man is abominable to the righteous, and he who is upright in his way is abominable to the wicked. 
The wicked and the righteous are always going to be at odds with each other. They're always going to be at difference with each other. They're always going to hold each other as abominable, and it's always going to be that way. So then, knowing that the unrighteous world considers you, who are walking upright in this life, they're considering you to be an abomination, then should you be turning to them? in order to find favor, in order to find the benefits of this world, this life, knowing that in the end they hate you, they wish you would shut up and go away because you're like a big neon sign declaring that God is real, God exists, God is a judge, righteousness exists, uprightness is called for, the word of God exists. You are a demonstration of that. You are an ambassador of heaven and the word that came down from heaven. You are an ambassador on the planet for all of that righteousness and uprightness if you're walking after the ways of God. And so the world hates you, and yet so much of the church that is supposed to be the upright turn to the hateful world for approval. They want so badly for the world to like them. And as I've said a couple times in the last week, even Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. If all men speak well of you, you're not doing it right. Because they can't tell. If they see it in you, if they can tell it in you, the world is going to hate you. Jesus said that. They're going to hate you because they hated me. They think that you are an abominable thing, the same way that you would look at their unrighteousness, their sinfulness, their depravity, their hatefulness, and you would consider that to be abominable. So there is this constant friction between the righteous and the sinners of this world. And all of the book of Proverbs is about that conflict between those who are wise, those who are foolish, those who are upright, those who are sinners, and then the constant againstness that exists between those two groups. And then the constant reminder to walk uprightly anyway, even though you're going to find that kind of resistance in the world, nevertheless walk uprightly. I think that's exactly what Jesus was saying to his disciples. They're going to hate you, but he didn't say, so for that reason, you know, keep it under a bushel. Don't tell anybody. Instead, it's the very fact that you are righteous, the very fact that you are following after the ways of Christ, the very fact that you are pursuing the things of God and the word of God, that is the reason they hate you. So then stick by it. It should be obvious despite the hatred. So that little proverb right there sums up so much of what we find in the Bible, not just in Proverbs, that there will always be this conflict. The same way there is this battle going on between your flesh and your spirit, there is this conflict going on in the world between those that are gods who love God and those that are the enemies of God. And that conflict will exist until the Prince of Peace comes back with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and takes care of his enemies. But the fact that it exists is not a good excuse for you to reduce your witness or the way you walk or the way you behave. Make sense? Yes. 
All right, well, we didn't get quite to where I wanted to get, but that's okay. I wanted to extrapolate on a few things tonight, and I was aware we might not get there. Next week, we will start with the words of Agur, the son of Jekah, the oracle. And once again, I've got several commentaries that I will read to you in an explanation of who those people are and uh, what the significance of of this next chapter is. But just remember, once we get into this chapter, right away, you're going to find that he says, every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. And so we shouldn't add to his words. I, I said we shouldn't. It's actually more of a command than that. It's a do not, as in don't. As in, no, uh uh-uh, get away from it. Don't touch that, it's hot. Don't go near the word of God thinking that you have the authority to add to it. Because it is the very word of God. Do not add to his words because he will reprove you. You'll be proved to be a liar. That will come up again next week. So if you think I exhausted it tonight, oh no, I'm just warming up. (laughs) Any questions about all that? Yes, sir. I have a question. Um, in the command about not adding to or taking away from any words that God has given us, how do we understand that in light of all the different translations? And, um, you know, like, for example, the King James only as crowd will say, you know, anything that's not King James is doing that. That will be their argument. Um, how do we understand that command in, in you, you just read a bunch of different translations that you referenced there that said various different things. Right. Translating is not adding or subtracting. It's just moving the word of God from a language to another language. And in doing so, you try to find a commensurate word in your language to the original language. And so sometimes you find fairly obscure words that different translators are taking their best shot at. And what I was trying to demonstrate tonight is that in that process, some words just can't be agreed on. And sometimes that doesn't matter. Sometimes you'll read four different translations, but the end result is the same. They're all teaching the same theology. They're all saying the same thing. What I was trying to emphasize tonight in the Proverbs is that this is one of those moments when there's just no real agreement because it changed the meaning dramatically depending on how you pronounce the word. But did anything that I read tonight between all those translations, did any of that change the basic theology? No. No. Did any of that change? Verse 19 was still there. Pardon me? Verse 19 was still there. Yeah, it's still there. Adding to the word of God would be things like, well, let's put it this way. We know that the word of God includes similes and metaphors and symbols. And so I argue that when we read a parable or a figure of speech, that it's necessary to translate it within the context that it appears in and in the overall context of the Bible. Even when we're interpreting We have to interpret within the context of the whole of the Bible. And if our interpretation is so far afield of the whole rest of the Bible. Here, I can give you a perfect example. We were talking about it at men's group last night. I won't name any names. 
but a local preacher has said that when the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, he said that the end of the age meant the end of the Roman occupation. And that what they were asking Jesus was, when will we no longer be occupied by Rome? Okay, so now does that fit with the overall context? Contextually, Jesus has already said things about this age and the age to come. Things like marriage, where he has said, in the age to come, there's not going to be marriage or given in marriage. We'll be like the angels. Okay, so then at the end of the Roman occupation, was that also the end of marriage? That doesn't fit the end of the age teaching that Jesus has already laid out. Jesus said there were certain sins, like the um, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come. So he identified this age and the age to come. You get to the book of Revelation, and in chapter 21, you start to read about the age to come, the end of an age and the beginning of the next age. Okay, those things are all laid out in the Bible So then on what basis biblically can you conclude that the end of the age that the disciples were talking about to Jesus was the end of the Roman occupation? Well, you can't prove that from the biblical context. All you can prove from the biblical context is that the concept of age that Jesus taught the disciples has to do with a future change of age leading to the new Jerusalem, right? Okay, well, then that would be adding to the Bible. You're saying something the Bible doesn't say. Nobody in the Bible's implied that. So you take the overall context of the Bible. What is the overall teaching of the Bible? What is the tone and tenor? What is the flow of the revelation of God? And then if you are saying something that doesn't fit in that tone, tenor, and flow of God, then clearly you're saying something extra biblical. So when we interpret when we exegete, when we explain the Bible, we have to make sure that our explanations or our translations or our interpretations of figures of speech, they all have to fit into the overall tone and tenor of the Bible. It can't change either the facts, the details, or the theology or doctrine that's already been established. Does that make sense? That was a long answer to a short question. And you opened the door, so that'll teach you. So. Yeah, Steve? Interesting that you can go from Rome and all the ex-cathedral pronouncements of the Pope, etc., and the councils, and the Book of Mormon, which clearly adds to the Scripture, to thousands and thousands of Baptist churches across this nation, where if you go look in the front of their hymnal, they will have pasted a church covenant which frequently they will read together every time they have the Lord's Supper. Yeah. That church covenant has some good things in it. There are some, you know, there are practices that ought to be followed, and then it has some yeah. stuff that is clearly not scriptural. Right. And they're saying this church covenant gets the same weight as reading the scripture. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty big problem with that, and they are clearly... They would say they never would add to the scripture, but they're doing it. But they're doing it, sure. I know many Reformed people who put more weight on the creeds Mm -hmm. when they're answering theological questions. They don't turn to scripture and exegete a text. They turn to the creeds. Here's an easy one. Here's an obvious one for you. Covenantalism 
is based on the notion that God established a covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. And so that the covenant of grace has been in effect ever since Adam and Eve were put out of the garden. You don't find in the Bible a covenant established at that moment. You don't find the word covenant. You don't find the establishment of a covenant. And when you point that out to them, they say that it is a theological necessity for their system. Okay, well, that would be adding to the scripture. If you can't find it in the scripture, and yet you believe it's a theological necessity, and that is your reason for saying it, well, then even your reason is not biblical. It's an extra-biblical justification for creating a theology that can't be extrapolated from the text. Right? So we, the more we keep coming up with these examples, the more we see that people do that all the time. Just like Steve just said, and it's so true. People say, no, I'm not doing that while they're doing it. I'm not tap dancing. You know, so, yes, you are. I'm looking at you. You're, and I wasn't, actually. But, <laughs> but people, people will... I'm not raising my hand, and I'm raising my hand to tell you I'm not raising my hand. It's like, but, but you are, but you are doing it. And so we have to be especially cautious, and I think that's why it's such an easy thing to do. That's why the Bible so repeatedly says, don't. Don't do it. Be careful that you don't do it. Make sure that the words you say are the words that God said. Otherwise, you're telling people things that are provably a lie. That seems like adequate inducement to not do it. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.